Good morning. It is great to be back here in Blue Lake this morning. In the last few months, uh, countless people have asked, what happened to your sermons? We enjoy listening to them, and uh, we miss them. Well, truth be told, it was time for a short break. Sherman preparation uh, takes rather significant time. And in combination with my day job as a flower farmer and running a not-so-small organization, a short respite was in order. But with the start of a new year, we returned with vigor and excitement to spread the Word of God. And then for those listening online, it is a great pleasure to announce the introduction of a website called lanedevries.com. And all sermons that we have done up till now, which is 18 of them, are all now posted as a, as a uh, podcast. And this website also provides the ability to extend beyond the reach, beyond the, the listener base that we have around the country and abroad. Now, the message this morning is based on John 1, 29-41. And it is called, From the Wings of the Dove to the Silence of the Lamb. Now, you may recognize these as two titles of movies all the way back from the 90s. And they are. But this morning, we will go on a journey from from, from lambs to doves, and culminating to the ultimate Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus, our Savior. Now, as a child growing up in Holland, every Saturday morning, from late spring to early fall, it was craziness in the street where we lived in. Folks from all over the town would come to that street, because there was a dove club in our street. And on Saturday morning, all the members of this club would bring their caged doves, and they were loaded on this big semi-truck. And this semi-truck would drive to some location all the way down in France. Now the next day, those doves would be released. And those doves would fly at speeds reaching 70 miles an hour, finding their way back home, where their owners would anxiously be waiting for their doves to come back, for their doves to return. These dove keepers used a special clocking device to record the exact arrival time of each of their doves. And all the members kept score of the fastest doves in each of those clubs. Now, prior to World War II, there were an estimated 1.2 million doves, racing doves, in Holland alone. But since these doves could be used to send messages across battle lines, 
the Germans ordered for all those doves to be killed. Now, since the war, the sport actually regained much popularity. And in countries like Holland and Belgium, doves are commonplace. Doves are also common in the Bible. They are mentioned 41 times. Noah sent out a dove to see if the water had receded and if the bird descended on land. Moses instructed the Israelites in Leviticus to bring two turtle doves for those who could not afford a lamb as a sin offering. Then David wrote in Psalm 55, If only I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and find rest. Now, doves appeared in the New Testament as well. The Bible says Mary and Joseph sacrificed two doves at the temple following the birth of Jesus, as was prescribed in the law. Then 30 years later, Jesus furiously drove out all the merchants from the temple, including those selling doves to worshippers. But one of the most familiar and significant references to doves comes from the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. All four gospel accounts mention the spirit descending like a dove. And this brings us to today's scripture reading of John 1, 29 through 42, which can be found in your pew Bible on page 92. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he may be revealed. To Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he watched Jesus walk by. And he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying. And they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two 
who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, churches around the world follow a schedule of weekly readings. Think of this as the equivalent of the TV guide for an entire year. And the gospel readings are on an annual rotation. Last year was the year of Luke. Next year, it's Mark's turn. And most of the gospel readings this year, in 2017, will be from Matthew. But then, on an occasional uh, basis, there are occasional exceptions where the gospel of John is used. And this week happens to be one of those weeks. Now, you may ask, why is John's gospel not part of this rotation? Just, another, just one of the Gospels. And that's a good question. But the story that John tells is distinctly different from the other three. It's like watching the news. On the one hand, there are news anchors like Anderson Cooper or Bill O'Reilly. And then you've got the field reporters and correspondents like Wolf Blitzer. They view the news as it presents itself, and they report on it. But then there are the commentators, the analysts, like Charles Krauthammer at Fox, or John King, or David Gergen, or Bill Bennett at CNN. These are folks that step back and give a more introspective view of the turn of events. It's like that with Mark and Matthew and Luke. They reported on the life of Jesus as they saw and heard it. So it was with John, who stopped back and gave this unique narrative. He is much more reflective. John was an eyewitness in the life of Jesus. But he looks back on it from an historical perspective. And let me illustrate this with an example. How does the Gospel of John start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. Oh, isn't that an interesting way to start the narrative of Jesus? Now, John doesn't mention any of the parables like the other three did. But he does highlight six miracles that are not mentioned in any of the other three Gospels. Some of them were quite notable, such as the very first miracle, turning water into wine at that wedding feast in Canaan. Here is 
the mother, Mother Mary, insisting that Jesus do something. Because here there is a wedding feast, a grand party, and all the wine is gone. But Jesus is reluctant. Mother, get off my back. Stop bugging me. I am not ready yet. But she persists, like most mothers do. And guess what? He turns water into wine. And the party continues till late into the night and the next day. But just weeks prior to this wedding, that baptism in the, door, in the Jordan had taken place in a location that is now part of the West Bank. John is the only gospel writer who doesn't specifically record that baptism of Jesus. However, in typical John fashion, he gives an interesting spin. Here's one example. Twice, he says, in verse 31 and verse 33, I did not know him. Now, how is that possible? Here is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. They're born only six months apart. And in Mediterranean culture, Jewish, Greek, Italian, those families hang together. They are close. And John says, I did not know him. Doesn't that seem odd? Now, some may remember sermon number eight last year, where we discussed that the Bible doesn't describe the whereabouts of Jesus for 18 years. And how those folks in England, in their favorite hymn, Jerusalem, sing these words. And did those feet in ancient time walk on England's mountain green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? Now, isn't this peculiar? If, if Jesus would have lived in the land of Israel for 18 years, wouldn't, have been, wouldn't he have been around his family? Then Jesus would have known John by heart. But since this is not the case, it is more likely that they were far apart from each other. Therefore, this passage in John's Gospel adds credence to the premise that maybe those folks in England may be onto something. And here is another interesting insight in what John the Baptist declares. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, wait a minute. The Lamb of God? Why is he calling Jesus the Lamb of God? Jesus is a man walking on two legs, not four. This is confusing. So in order to understand this a little better, we need to go back where it all started. 
Now, some of these things may be a little hard to follow and understand. And as a flower farmer, not a theologian, we can use all the help there is. For instance, I enjoy listening to Christian radio on 89.3 FM and 1400 AM. They are a great resource. Now, earlier this week, at lunchtime while driving to get a sandwich, I listened to Mother Miriam on the AM dial. And lo and behold, she provided the clearest answer to this question of the Lamb of God. Mankind is created for heaven. But since the days of Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin. Moses said in Leviticus, the life of the flesh is in the blood. It was given on an altar to give reparation of our soul. The Jewish people were taught this sacrificial system of a sinner substituting an animal like a dove or a lamb, and they were brought before the altar. The person put his hand on the lamb, symbolic for passing that sin of the individual into that little lamb. Then the lamb was slain, and the blood shed all over the altar. Millions of lambs were offered as a price for sin. Now, why did Jesus, our Lord, die for us? In the Jordan, John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. Jesus alone would die on the cross as the Lamb of Lambs. Our sin, past and future, would be put on him. With our sin on him, he became our sin offering to God. Sins of mankind, from Adam all the way up to today, are paid for. But if Jesus would have remained dead, like those four-legged lambs, it would have meant nothing. But he arose from the dead on the third day. He is God, and he gives life to all who trust in him. A few weeks ago, I heard a story about a woman who approached her pastor, and she proudly said, I follow all the Ten Commandments. I don't steal, I don't murder, and the the pastor quickly stopped her right there and reminded her what Jesus had said. Even when you think any of these things, you have sinned. Well, then she replied, well, if that's the case, we're all sinners. And that is exactly the point. With the exception of Jesus, nobody is born pure. Here is the moral of the story. There is nothing we can do ourselves to earn heaven. Nothing in the eyes of the Lord will be good enough. But there is no longer a need for doves or or lambs to be offered as sacrifice. 
Let me give an illustration. We see some tulips uh, uh, in front of us here. And as a, as a four-generation flower farmer, I've been around tulips my whole life. And as a child, I remember my father planting tulips in these tiny wooden boxes. They would fill them up with sand. we plant the tulips, cover them up with more sand, and then we put straw on top of all that because it freezes in Holland and otherwise you would never be able to get the tulips out or they would freeze to death. Then these tulips would be carried into the greenhouse every week with a wheelbarrow, box by box. This is how I learned growing tulips. After three weeks in the greenhouse, those tulips would be ready to be picked. We picked them, and then the next batch was brought to the greenhouse. We kept doing that several times during a winter. Now, once the outside temperatures started rising in the spring, the season came to an end, which is usually about the beginning of April, before the field tulips would start uh, coming in. All this changed when tulips were planted in plastic crates. And they are now grown in coolers, 20 layers high. These tulips could be held in this condition for up to 10 months. Hence the introduction of year-round tulips. Now just thinking back how this was done in the old days, it's very hard to imagine anymore. The old days where the Israelites would bring a lamb or two doves to the temple in Jerusalem as a sacrifice for their sins, those days are gone forever. The lambs have been silent ever since. It all ended with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Jesus predicted that this would happen in Luke 19, when he wept as he came down the Mount of Olives, and he told his disciples, this temple will be destroyed. Now, a few years ago, while visiting Israel, I remember standing on the Mount of Olives on that cold, rainy March morning. And standing on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, and seeing the ruins of the temple, with a mosque built on top of it nowadays. Imagine what those disciples must have felt like when Jesus said this. How can this beautiful temple, the place of worship for all of Israel, be destroyed? But it did, 40 years later, when in 70 AD, the Romans ransacked Jerusalem, killed hundreds of thousands of Jews, and tore down the temple. Ladies and gentlemen, just like that old way of growing tulips, we have come full circle from doves to lambs to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The old way is gone. Because there is a new way, a better way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father 
but through me. He is the light of the world. Let the Spirit of God descend upon our heart. Here is the good news. We are all sinners. And we are all welcome to the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if you come to me, I will in no way turn you away. Once we surrender and accept him into our life, he will transform us. Jesus died for our sins. And he gives life eternal to all those who trust him and accept him as Lord and Savior. Amen.